What kind of church do you go to? You ever get fumbled up or hesitant or tripped up when somebody asks you, what kind of church do you go to? Have you ever felt that tension where you think that you should say Baptist, but you know that what that probably means to the person asking the question and what you mean by it would probably not align. There's probably going to come into their mind a stereotype and you feel like that's probably not what I want them to think. So I'm not going to say, or I don't feel comfortable saying a Baptist church. Maybe you also feel obligated to say a Reformed Baptist church, but you're not really interested in answering the follow-up question, which is inevitably going to come, which is, now what is that? I've not heard of that before. This question for people like us sort of uh, causes us to hesitate, brings a little hesitation. Now, why is that? Is that because the person who's asking us the question has a really detailed understanding of the various kinds of churches, and they're trying to pinpoint your exact theological positions with that question? Is that why we we trip up? Is that why we stumble? They, They know what the Methodists believe, and they know what the Presbyterians believe, and they know what the Reformed Baptists believe, and they're asking you because they want to know your theological distinctions. The answer is no. That's usually not why we we stumble through answering that question. Typically, if that person is honest when they ask that question, they, they may at most take your answer and then sort of imagine or try to determine in the back of their minds what you probably do on Sunday. That's usually what they mean by, what kind of church do you go to? If I picture you on a Sunday morning, are you wearing a tie? Is the preacher yelling or is he really calm? Are there you know, rainbow banners behind you? That's, how you, that's what you, you imagine if they say, I go to a Methodist church, right? There are rainbow banners behind me and I've got the, the, uh, the LGBT garb on. Um, that's, that's typically what they mean. What, what does your Sunday look like? The question brings hesitation to us because we understand that the kind of church that you are a part of, at least at some point in history, actually meant something. And so we, we sort of hesitate. I want them to know what I mean when I say Baptist. I want them to know what I mean when I say Reformed Baptist. Typically, when somebody asks what kind of church you go to, they are expecting you to give them a particular denomination, like Baptist, like Lutheran, like Methodist, like Presbyterian, maybe Pentecostal. The word denomination simply means a name given. You've been denominated. You've been given a name. And with regard to churches, the names given or the denominations have historically divided various churches according to doctrinal and practical distinctives. And so if you went to a Methodist church, there was a doctrinal and practical reason why you were there and why you weren't at a Baptist church and vice versa. The Baptists are here and the Methodists are here. Today there are many, and you've probably met them, who will greatly disparage the very idea of divisions and denominations amongst churches. 
There shouldn't be all these denominations, they say. If we're all reading out of the same book, then we should all be coming to the same conclusions, and so we shouldn't have all these different churches. And usually what, they, what comes after that, dot, 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 therefore I stay home and don't go to church. That's usually what happens. Well, this idea has led to the introduction of what we now know as non-denominational churches. That's a name given to churches who don't fall under the, the typical mainline denominations. Non-denominational churches. Churches that don't so strictly adhere to a historic confession of faith or traditions of practice. Ironically, those who most despise the division of churches by denominations strike out on their own and start their own churches and designate them as non-denominational churches. We don't like all of the divisions. So we're going to go over here and start our own division, our own denomination. I found this online when I, I just Googled the history of non-denominational churches. The non-denominational movement began in the 1800s. While it clearly took off in the 1900s, it was actually started much earlier. And the history of it began with what we know as the Church of Christ or the Campbellites which we know is a denomination. You can say the Campbellites, the, the Church of Christ, they believe particular things, but that's sort of where it began. That website goes on to say, Attendance at non-denominational churches exploded from 1990 through 2008. During that period of time, the number of people attending non-denominational worship gatherings went from about 200,000 to at least 8 million in non-denominational churches. And another website said, I think this might have been Wikipedia, which we know we can trust, if, you combined, uh, if they were combined into a single group, non-denominational churches collectively represent the third largest Christian grouping in the United States in 2010, after the Roman Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention. They're at least kind enough to divide those two. Roman Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention. And then you have non-denominational churches is the, the third largest grouping. We can group all of these people together because they have this banner, non-denominational. That's our title. And if you think about it, the non-denominational movement began as and is still rapidly growing simply because of the natural distaste for doctrinal and practical clarity. You guys are too firm on what you believe and how you practice. That those things which distinguish you from everyone else. Now think about that for a minute. The kind of a church that one was a part of carried such known doctrinal and practical weight to it that to avoid being pinned down in doctrine or practice, people began to form non-denominational churches. It used to mean something when you said, I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Methodist, or I'm a... it meant something. It meant something, and so people left, and they wanted to start their own thing. People strike out on their own. And most non-denominational churches, if we're honest, are typically non-doctrinal churches. They adopt that nomenclature, and I chose the word nomenclature because you have to find a synonym for denomination or, or, or title, not because I want to use big words. They, they adopt that nomenclature because, the, the title non-denominational, they adopt that and, 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 and put that out and advertise themselves as that because they want to be open to all kinds of people without being forced into a mold by history or tradition or both. Now think about the irony of this because when you go into a, a non-denominational church, they believe something 
Don't they? I mean, why are we even here? And somebody had to come up with that. Most of them will have a what we believe section on their website. Somebody had to come up with that. And so people are inevitably or, or, or invariably showing that they feel safer in a church where belief statements have been determined by a single individual or a small group of individuals. They would rather that, but they don't feel comfortable with confessions of faith that have been chiseled out over time by many men and have withstood the storms of heresy down through the centuries. So in order to, to, to not be pressed into a doctrinal mold that is time-tested, they just go to a church where they're sort of pressed into a mold that some guy came up with. He wanted to write his own statement of faith. Or this church wanted to write their own statement of faith. But the sad reality is that many, de- non- or many denominational churches have also drifted toward the center when it comes to doctrine. So they might still have. We have churches today that are, they, they might have that on their sign. We're a Baptist church. We're a, a Presbyterian church. We're a Methodist church. But if, but if you ask them about their, the distinctives of their denomination, they couldn't explain it. They don't, they don't know what it means. There might be a link to the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 on their website, but the average pew sitter couldn't tell you what it means to be a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian. At that stage, they might as well be a non-denominational church. What are your doctrinal distinctives? Well, we are not a non-denominational church. We are a Baptist church. Now, if you want to go further, we are a Reformed Baptist church. And if somebody pushes, well, what does that mean? Now, I've never heard of that. What does that mean? You could say that we're Reformed in our theology Baptist in our ecclesiology, our doctrine of the church. Now, if they want any further explanation than that, you could say, and this is sort of tongue-in-cheek, but you could say we believe that God is the one who determines our belief and our practices. Because that is essentially, perhaps a little bit reductionistic, but that's what it means to be a Reformed Baptist. We're Reformed, which means all of our doctrine begins and ends with God... That was simply rediscovered during the time of what we call the Protestant Reformation. All of our doctrine begins and ends with God. We're Reformed. And we're Baptist, which means all of our practice as a church begins and ends with God and His Word. And we disregard all human introductions or inventions. We start with God in our theology. We start with God in our ecclesiology. Now, I think there's clearly more to it than that. We all know that. But that will get you started in a conversation. Because they might then ask, well, do, do not all churches believe that? Well, and then you could begin to focus on some of the details. Now, I said there that, our, that we are Baptist in our ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is our, our, our doctrine of the church. We are, we are Baptist in our doctrine of the church. Now, maybe you've never thought of it that way because you hear the word baptize in the word Baptist. And so you probably assume that being a Baptist only had specific reference to our method of baptism. And, and a lot of people think that. I would say a broad majority of people who call themselves Baptists, if you ask them, why are you a Baptist, they would point to their, their method or doctrine of baptism. And a Presbyterian, they would say, well, well, they baptize babies and we don't. I was thinking this week. It, it really, in many Baptist churches, 
churches that call themselves Baptists, the only human being they won't baptize is an eight-day-old baby. They'll baptize, you know, give them, give them two more weeks and let them mumble something that their mom told them and we'll baptize them. But usually it, in people's minds, it comes down to the doctrine of, of baptism. Presbyterians, Methodists, and Lutherans, they all sprinkle infants and Baptists don't. That's what people know or think. While it is true that we have a different doctrine of and practice of baptism than these other denominations, what makes us Baptists is not simply our doctrine of baptism. The name Baptists, just like the name Anabaptists that came around the same time period, was originally a derogatory term that stemmed from the practice of baptizing adult believers only. But the fact that the early Baptists only baptized adult believers was rooted in their doctrine of the church. That wasn't where they started. They didn't say, hey, you guys want to baptize adults only? Cool, let's, let's figure out a way to justify that from Scripture. No, they began with their doctrine of the church. Baptism to, to these various groups has always been seen as the doorway into the church. The question which drew the sharp distinction in the days of our particular Baptist forefathers was not what ordinance exemplifies entry into the church. The question was, what is a church? What do we believe a church is? That's the difference between a Baptist and these other groups. And I had a book. I was going to read a longer quote, but I actually did type out the, the, the shortest and most pertinent part of this quote from James Renahan in his book, Edification and Beauty. Ecclesiology, study of the church, doctrine of the church, was the driving force behind the Baptist movement. Not who do we put in the water. Ecclesiology. What is a church? That's what makes a Baptist a Baptist. How you answer that question, what is a church? We are Baptists because of our distinct doctrine of the nature of the Christian church. We answer the question, what is a true church differently than others? even those with whom we might share much in common in other areas of doctrine. And, and our confession and the, the articles that were written along with it go to, go to show that. We, we, we struck out uh, in, in our, our forefathers in writing the confession not to start a brand new religion. They, they worked to say, no, listen, we agree with you on a lot of things. But there are some specific details where we have to... We have to go a different route. But we agree with them on many things. We see this in the fact that while the Westminster Confession of Faith has six paragraphs on the church, and the Savoy Declaration has five paragraphs on the church, the Baptist Confession has 15 paragraphs on the church. If I'm not mistaken, this is the longest chapter in our confession. Why? Because the Baptists wanted to say, here's what we believe a church is. Now, I often refer to the drum that I feel compelled to beat regarding the church, specifically the local church. I'm always beating the drum of the local church, the local church, the local church. That's not because I see myself as some sort of a cheerleader who wants to drum up attendance to a meeting or, or get people to come together and be friends with one another. I do that because... I'm a Baptist. It's because I believe in 15 paragraphs of confessional church doctrine with regard to ecclesiology. Most of all, it's because I believe what the Bible teaches about the church. 
I believe, as with our Baptist forefathers from the past, and this sort of relates to what we studied this morning, the new covenant is the constitution of the church. The nature of the church relates to our covenant theology. Covenant theology regards the way that we read the entire Bible, the whole thing. It's not just a few minor details here and there. It's the way we read the entire Bible. And I would go so far as to say covenant theology deals with and answers the questions regard, with regard to what we believe happened at the bloodshedding of Christ. What do we believe happened when Jesus shed His blood? He said, this is my blood of the new covenant. The covenant goes together. Covenant theology goes with the blood. What happened when Christ died on the cross? Our doctrine and practice of baptism is ultimately the manifestation and application of what we believe happened at the cross. It's that serious. To be a Baptist relates to far more than who we put in the baptismal waters. To be a Baptist relates really with who we put on the membership roster of the local church. Our doctrine of the local church is rooted in our doctrine of the universal church. And that's where our confession begins, with the universal church. We differ with others on the doctrine of the universal church. Therefore, we differ in our doctrine with regard to the local church. And if we agree with other groups in our doctrine of the universal church, but then differ when we come to the local church, it's because one of us is being inconsistent. And that's, that's where... Um, and I think we'll get into some of that. But our confession begins with the universal church. Vody Bauckham in his 2017 address at the G3 conference on the church um, points out that in our confession, one out of 15 paragraphs deals with the universal church. That's incorrect. The first four paragraphs of our confession are dealing with the idea of the universal church. Now, only the first paragraph makes reference to the universal church, but all four paragraphs are dealing with the universal church because they're dealing with the notion of God's people in the world. God has a people. They're called His church. You can look with me there. Now, paragraph 1 actually uses the express language of the Catholic or universal church, the whole number of the elect. Then when we get to paragraph 2... Notice what it says, all persons throughout the world. And there at the end it says, called visible saints. It's still talking about the broad number of the people of God all over the world. Paragraph 3, at the end, uh, let's see, paragraph 3. Yeah, it's broken in mine. It says, nevertheless, Christ always hath had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world. He's talking about broadly, or the confession is talking about broadly, His kingdom, His people in the world. And then paragraph 4 says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, singular. That's still a reference to the, the concept of a universal church. Now there, again, you could point to statements and say, well, it sounds like it's talking about a local church there. Um, but the the main force of all of all four of these paragraphs is pointing to the idea of the universal church. 
And then paragraph 5 begins to address the nature of what it calls particular societies that we would call local churches. What do we learn from that? What we learn is that our doctrine of the local church grows out of our doctrine of the universal church. We start with the idea of God having a people in the world, and then we work our way down to what, 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 what of those people are the church when they come together in particular societies. So then we would ask, what do we believe, or what is our doctrine about the universal church? Paragraph 1, the first thing we see is its title, or we could say its denomination. Its title, the Catholic or universal church which, with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace, may be called invisible. Now we've got three terms here that have historically been used to describe the, the entire body of God's people. The first is Catholic. Catholic, which means literally on the whole. That's what the word Catholic means. On the whole. The phrase Catholic church simply means the whole church, the whole thing. Now that word has been commandeered by what we know as the Roman Catholic Church, and so we usually feel a little gross when we say it. You know, we, small c Catholic, we want to justify ourselves. Because we feel kind of weird saying that, but the word simply means the church on the whole, all of God's people. That's one way we can think of this. The second word is the word universal, the Catholic or universal church. And we see there that these two words are to be considered synonymous. The word universal means all together, all in one, whole, entire, relating to all. It means literally turned into one. That's what the word universal means. Turned into one. So to think of the universal church is to imagine all of God's people as if they were gathered into one body. Universal Church. And then we have a third term which comes with a little bit of explanation. And for the sake of the explanation, I'm going to read this statement without the parenthetical statement. We're going to take it out, read it, and then we'll bring it back in. The Catholic or universal church, which may be called invisible. So we may call this same body, this Catholic body, this universal body, we may also call it the invisible church. It's appropriate to think of it that way and to name it that way as the invisible church. Years ago, our men were, went for the summer to a theology class at what was then Harvest Bible Chapel. Now it's Hickory Bible Church. And Adam Ashoff made the comment there that there was no such thing as an invisible church because if somebody's a Christian, they won't be able to keep that hidden from the sight of other people. In other words, there are no invisible saints, therefore there is no invisible church. And that's stuck in my crawl ever since. I thought, that's not what it means. We see here what is meant by the name invisible church. It doesn't mean that there are Christians walking around and there's no way to tell if they're a Christian or not. They're just, they're out there and God has people and He knows those who are His and well, when we get to heaven, we'll know who all... That's, that's not what we mean by that. We have this parenthetical description. Invisible, with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace. There is an internal work of the Spirit that's not visible to the eyes of men. 
the truth of grace or the truth regarding God's work of grace is that we cannot see it with our visible eyes. We our physical eyes, we see the effects of it. So when we think of this body that's Catholic, the whole church down to a man, or universal, the whole church down to a man considered as one collected assembly, we add to that the invisible nature of the work of the Spirit of God in one individual and in individuals all over the world at any given point in history, we recognize we cannot see that. I can't see that with my physical eyes because it covers the whole globe. Or if we want to think of it in its the smallest scale, we cannot even see with our physical eyes the moment that one person who may be in our physical presence is brought from death to life. You don't know when a person's regenerated. They might walk into the room as lost as, they, as the day they were born and walk out of the room a born-again saint. You're not going to see it and you know, catch the halo or the glow come before them. These, these works of God are things that we cannot see with our physical eyes. Alternatively, when we move into the concept of local churches and physical gatherings of people, we begin to think in terms of what has been called the visible church. And, and typically this is pitted against each other. There's the invisible and then there's the visible. And what is meant by that language is an assembly of people that we can actually see with our eyes. We can see them gathered. You walk into the room and there they are. Here's the visible church. But in any visible assembly, we are still unable to see the invisible work of the Spirit. There might be professors in a visible church who are void of the work of the Spirit. They're not Christians at all. And you don't know it, at least at that point. It might come to light at some point in the future. But at that point, you might not know it. They don't have the Spirit at all. Or there might be young children in the assembly who have been truly born again, and yet they've, they've not discerned that yet, or it's not been discerned by the assembly just yet. We haven't been able to see it. And so in that case, they would still be, there's still an invisible work in the visible church. The sum of the matter is that God <clears throat> has a people saved by the blood of His Son, and the fullness of that group, universal or Catholic, the fullness of that group is known and seen only by God. We can't see it. It's a, in that sense, invisible. So we can call it, you can call it any of these three terms, Catholic, universal, invisible, but these are appropriate terms. Secondly, then we see its membership. Its membership. The next question is, who makes up this Catholic, universal, invisible church? It's membership. This Catholic, universal, invisible church, the confession reads, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof. So this universal church consists of the whole number of the elect. Now back in chapter 3 of our confession, we read this. By the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. Paragraph 4, their number is so certain and definite that it cannot either be increased or diminished. Paragraph 6, God hath appointed the elect unto glory. In the end of that paragraph, neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect 
only. These are the, those chosen from the foundation of the world. God has freely and unchangeably chosen a certain, definite, and unchangeable number of fallen men to be the recipients of His saving grace in and through Christ. We do not know who those people are. Now, we come to know in time through God's saving grace and the manifestations of that grace. But there's no way that we can walk out into a store or anywhere and say, now that person is one of the elect and that one is and, and those two are not. There's no way we can know that. In that sense, this number is known only to God. When we talk about the elect, we're talking about a group of people known only to God. This number is made of men and women starting from the beginning of time and going until the end of time. This universal church is those people, all that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof. That is, Christ is the head of the universal church. And we'll see that again in paragraph 4. The confession references Colossians 1.18. He, speaking of Christ, is head of the body, the church. He's its head. And then in that passage in Hebrews 12 we just read, this contrast between what the Israelites experienced on Mount Sinai and what believers experience at Mount Zion. I'll read verses 22 to 24 again. But you have come to Mount Zion, speaking to these believers, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now think about this passage. He says, you have come. Speaking to those saints in that day. You have come. He's not talking about a future hope, but a present reality as saints. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of God. These are figures and typological names for the church, the people of God. He calls it the assembly of the firstborn. Or you might have the word church. That's the word, ecclesia. The church of the firstborn. The firstborn being Christ. This is, you've come to the church of Christ, the firstborn. He's addressing their present status as saints of God on the earth. And yet this church to which they've come, this church of the firstborn, is also styled the heavenly Jerusalem. Along with this group are angels in festal gathering, the elect angels. And the assembly enrolled in heaven, he says, that would be, I believe, a reference to the, the book of life in Revelation 13, 8, names written before the foundation of the world. And then he says, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, or just men made perfect, that is, Christians who have died, their bodies are in the dirt, but their spirits have gone to be with Christ. They are in their spirit perfected. Not glorified yet because their bodies still have to be glorified. But they're perfected with Christ even now. That's those who've already died and entered heaven. Now, now think about it. You, he's talking to, to, to saints. You, in, in, in Christians and in being part of this new covenant, 
you have come to this gathering. It's not just the people you go to church with. It's a gathering of angels, of saints who've gone on before you. And I believe he's talking about when they got together as a church. When you get together as a church, you are joining in a worship that has begun from the foundation of the world as saints have gone, the righteous spirits being uh, in the presence of Christ and the angels who worship God. He said, when you you go to church, you're getting together with a, a body that you can't fully see. It's way bigger than what you think in, in, or what you might see in a local gathering, a local assembly. That's why when we, we, we think about small churches, we've got to think bigger than just the, the number of people that we can see. He, the author here groups the living saints with the dead saints. And he says, you're all a part of this church of the firstborn. In, in these kinds of passages, like we also see in books like Colossians and Galatians, The saints who've already come to know God are being tempted with something else beyond Christ. These are are Christians in churches and they're being tempted to add something to their Christianity or to come back to, to to uh, Judaism, the ceremonies of Judaism. Something beyond Christ. Something in addition to Christ. That's what's happening again in Colossians and Galatians and here. And Paul writes in Colossians, he writes in Galatians, he writes here in the Hebrews. He's trying to explain to them that in coming to faith in Christ and being joined to Christ, they already possess all of the promises of God. Why would you go beyond that? What else do you need? You've got it all. To the saints in, in, in Galatia, you are the offspring of Abraham. Colossians, you, you've got all of the fullness in Christ. You, you've got it all. And here, no doubt, these saints are being tempted to return to the ceremonies and forms of Mosaic Judaism. And the apostle, imagine you're Jewish and you're, or you're a Jewish convert, you're a Christian now, but your Jewish family and friends are saying, come back to the temple. We've got the sacrifices. We've got all of these things. Come back and join with us. Paul's explaining to them that they have already come to possess the real heavenly realities to which all of the Mosaic types pointed. Why would you go back to that? You've got the heavenly reality. Why would you go back to Mount Sinai? You've got Mount Zion. That's what he's saying. You've entered into the church of Jesus Christ and you've already come to join the heavenly assembly of saints and angels. You are a part of their number and they are a part of your number. Earlier in the book of of, uh, Hebrews... It says, God, is, uh, God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Those Old Testament saints, we're added to their number. And they are a part of our number. There, there is one people of God, the universal church, the Catholic church, the invisible church, the elect of God. That's that people. So the membership in this Catholic, universal, invisible church is made up of the elect. And it's in that sense that the term elect is another way of speaking of the exact same group. So if you wanted to say the elect, same, same idea, same concept, the people of God. Thirdly, this Catholic, universal, visible church is also known as the elect, is also known in relation to Christ, the head 
its relation to Christ. We see in, it says, is also the spouse, the body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Now here we say, see three ways in which the universal church relates to Christ. First, the universal church is the spouse of Christ. Ephesians 5, 25-27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, and then in verse 32, Paul says this mystery is profound as he describes marriage. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. In the, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, Paul says, here's the mystery. It was about Christ and the church. The church is the spouse of Christ. The mystery of marriage is that it is a type of the church's union with Christ. Several other things we learn from this passage. Christ loves the church. Christ gave Himself up in death for the church. Christ protects and preserves the church. John 6, 39, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Not one. I'm going to raise every one of them up, He says. He protects and preserves the church. He's made a covenantal bond with the church in His own blood. Jesus Christ holds to the permanence view of marriage with His church. Christ is engaged even, even now for the cleansing and the purifying of His church. That's all true of the universal church, the elect of God. Then we see the universal church is the body of Christ. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. We see here Christ is the federal head of the church, representative covenant head of the church. He's also the leader and guide of the church. He's the ruler and authority over his church. Christ as head of the church and the body, or the church being the body of Christ, Christ sees treatment of the church as treatment of himself. Matthew 25, 40, the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. He takes it personally, the way people treat his church. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, it says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way... Who's he going? He's going to find Christians. If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. What's he going to do? He's going to find Christians, individual members of this body called the elect. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? His people. He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I don't think any of us men, if somebody broke into our houses and were assaulting our wives, we would say, Well, that's her. I'm over here and I'm fine. No, we'd take it personally. Christ treats the church like a man does his own flesh. 
Ephesians 5, 29 and 30, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. You take care of your flesh. You've got reflexes built into your body to protect yourself. When you're about to fall, you put your hands out. If a ball's coming at you, you put your hand up. You, you flinch. Your body is, is inherent with reflexes to protect itself. Because you take care of your own flesh, even when you're not thinking about it. Christ says, this church is my body. And He takes care of His body like, like a man does his own flesh. And then we see the universal church is the fullness of Christ. Now this truth, we've looked at before when we studied sanctification, I think. And it is, to me, one of the highest and most majestic truths that the Bible teaches about the church, that God teaches us about the church. And I would say for me, this single truth drives my personal convictions with regard to the church and especially participation in the local church. The church is the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 1, to 23. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ, and as the body of Christ, the church is the fullness of Christ. Now, I won't go any further because I think what I want to do next week is make an attempt with the help of Professor John Murray to unpack that idea. What does it mean that the church is the fullness of Christ? But we see that stated here in our confession and from Ephesians 1. A few points of conclusion. We're Baptists because of our view of the nature of the church. Here we see that we believe the church is the full number of God's elect, those subject to His eternal working of grace or internal working of grace by His Holy Spirit. That's who the church is. The church is not a New Testament phenomenon. God had people redeemed by His grace even under the Old Covenant. The New Covenant, and we talked talking about this at lunch. I think it was with Cody. Somebody. The virtue and efficacy of the new covenant extends backwards and is applied to those even who lived prior to the institution of the new covenant. Now, how can that be? It's because to get into the new covenant, to come into union with Christ, happens through faith. They exercise faith Looking forward, we exercise faith looking backward to what has happened, but we're all looking at the same promises of God and entrusting ourselves to those same promises of the coming Messiah. And therefore, the virtue and efficacy of the new covenant, even though not sealed in the blood of Christ yet, not brought into effect yet, still worked retroactively for their salvation because the old covenant, as we saw this morning, offers no salvation. So the, Christ, the, the church is not a New Testament phenomenon. 
All who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ are members of the universal church. We need to be careful with equivocating on the word church as it regards ethnic Israel. It is true that if you have a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word church is applied very broadly to just the assembly of the people of God. That doesn't mean that they were all regenerate. The word just means a gathering, a called out assembly. And you'll see old writers, typically, uh, uh, typically of a, uh, a paedo-baptist persuasion, they will refer to the church in the wilderness and they might mean a little more with that phrase than we would mean. So just, just be careful and watch for that. They were an assembly, but as an ethnic group, they were not the church just because they were born into the, the family of Abraham. But there were members of the universal church within that community, believing Israelites. As we saw this morning, even David says, Your law is within my heart. Thirdly, because we believe the universal church is constituted by an internal and invisible work of grace upon men, then we believe the local church should be made up of no more than those who give a credible reason to believe that they are recipients of that invisible work. That is, with regard to membership, we, we look after a credible profession of faith and reason to believe Based on Scripture, this person has been born again with regard to membership, not attendance. We don't say, don't come in until you're a Christian. No, we want everyone to come. But when it comes to membership, who constitutes the covenant community? Who constitutes the elect? Well, it's people who have been recipients of this grace and give a credible reason to believe that they are recipients of that grace. Number four... Christ has had His redeeming eye on the church from eternity. Christ came from heaven to save His church. Christ prayed that His church would be with Him where He is to see His glory. Christ lives right now to make intercession for His church. He's praying for His church even now. And so then, I'll close with this. If that is Christ's view of the church... What should our view of the church be? How should we think about the church if, if Christ is willing to live and to die for the church, to live to make intercession for the church, to pray for the church, to ask His Father, Lord, I, I want them to be with me. He loves the church. What should our view be? We should love the church. Very often, when it comes to our own marriages, I find this true of myself, maybe more than anybody, any man in the room, when it comes to our own marriages, we are very quick to complain about our brides, to let them know when they do things that displease us, very vocal about what doesn't please us, not very vocal about what does please us, not openly praising and lauding our wives for the work that they do and, and letting them know that they are a gift to us from God, that we couldn't make it without them. It might be even worse that a lot of times we're like this with the bride of Christ, that we're willing to bemoan and complain about all the things that we see 
We're very quick to express our displeasure. I don't like that this is happening. Various things, we, we, we're very vocal about the things we don't like that's happening. But how quick are we to be vocal and praise the things that we do see happening that are good? The, the evidences of Christ's clear working amongst His people, the workings of grace that we see. It's easy to, to complain and bemoan the things that, we, that displease us. We ought to be very open and vocal about the things that we like and see, the things that do please us. Cherish the church. Let's pray and we'll sing together.